And what we're going to see tonight is three things. Jesus is seeable, and so you don't have to guess what he's like. He's supreme, and so you don't have to fear anymore. And he's sufficient, and so you don't have to supplement him anymore. Um, Chip mentioned this earlier, by the way. If you don't have the digital bulletin on the GroupMe, it's also on our Facebook page. If you're not a part of the GroupMe yet, you can find it on there. Um, I've been really excited to teach this, past, this particular passage tonight. Probably might be my favorite in the whole book of Colossians. But it is really daunting too. Um, someone texted me earlier and said, I'm praying for you tonight. And I, you know, usually it's like, thanks. I appreciate that. Tonight it was like, well, here's more you can pray for. I feel like in a passage like this, I feel like an amateur who's never like really taken an art appreciation class or whatever, describing the whole ceiling of the Sistine Chapel to like a blind child. Uh, I, I've got weak words. I've got my limited mind. We have whatever attention span is left over at 8.30 on a Wednesday night. This is a tall order to try to get out of the way and show you the beauty of Jesus Christ whether you already see that beauty or whether you don't see him as that, whether you see him as just another historical figure, that's a tall order. And so because of who I am, because of who we are, uh, let's pray. Father, the honest thing about us is that we're anxious people and we're scared people, we're restless people, frantic people. We have little bursts of rest, little bursts of sobriety and sanity, but our seems like our resting heartbeat is one of uh, running our lives. And we're suspicious that the reason why is because we have a very small view of Jesus, who is very big. And so tonight, we ask you who can do something about this predicament. Uh, we ask you to, um, to come and change that. And we ask this in your name. Amen. Ten years ago, a woman in a small farming village in Austria in her mid-twenties walks into her local police station. And she tells the officers on duty that day that she had just escaped from 24 years of captivity. Her name is Elizabeth Fritzel. And uh, she told those officers that for 24 years she had been locked behind several doors underneath her family's house in this little farming village in Austria. And uh, she literally could hear her family walking and talking and life happening for 24 years on the floor above her. They had given up hope looking for her. Her father, who had put her in captivity, told the family she had run away as a little girl and they just assumed she'd either been abducted or had passed away and no one had yet found her body. But the point was that no one was looking for her anymore. And to make matters even worse, tragically over those 24 years, her own father seven times impregnated her. And three of those children would end up being delivered and survive and a 10-foot by 10-foot room was the only reality they knew. It's the only world they knew for their entire lives. They had not even seen a picture of the outside world. The only glimmer of an outside world they had was a fuzzy battery-operated radio that sometimes would pick up enough signal. So one day, uh, Elizabeth and her three kids find an opportunity. They make a break for the door. They get out of the house, they run 
to the road and they flag down this guy driving by in this rusty old pickup truck. So they jump in the back, they bang on the back window and they say, drive, drive. And so he hits the accelerator and they drive and the picture after that is one that I'll never be able to get out of my mind. Uh, the movie Room was, was written about this episode, if you've seen that movie. You can look up the trailer tonight if you want. The, pic, the trailer itself captures this particular scene where these little boys are lying back down in the back of a rusty pickup truck like this as this truck is speeding down these farm roads to get them away from that house. And the look on their face is a look of pure awe and captivation and wonder and astound, just astonishment. It's the first time in their lives they had ever seen the sky. It's the first time in their lives they'd ever seen birds or power lines or houses or trucks. And it's the first time they're feeling this, this kind of cold, it's wintertime, this cold burn of the wind on their face and they're smelling the smoke in the air. Someone's having a fire in the town and you can see the question in their eyes as they just crane their neck from left to right, the whole horizon spellbound. They're asking the question somewhere deep down inside, what is this world that I'm in now? Where is this place? What is this place? Is this the world that I'd heard glimmers of on that radio growing up? Now here's why I share this story. Last week, we talked about, if you were here, we talked about the prayer that Paul prayed for these Christians in this Turkish town, Colossae. And the last thing Paul said in that prayer, if you remember, if you have your Bible open, look at the very first verse before Anna started reading, verse 14. What's the, ver what's the uh, sorry, verse 13. What's the last thing Paul says before he talks about what, he, what we're talking about tonight? What's the very last thing he says? Well, he says this, reality God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son, Jesus, in whom we have redemption. And so the key question is this. What's the first thing you see? If you, in fact, have been delivered out of the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of God's beloved son, Jesus, what's the first sight that you see? For the little boys in Austria, the first sight they saw was birds, was power lines, was clouds with a little bit of blue sky poking around the corners, and it arrested their attention. But what is it for the Christian? What's the first thing you see when God takes you out of that dungeon and puts you in the kingdom of his beloved son? Well, Paul answers the question because Paul had just said that the next words out of his mouth is what we're talking about tonight. The beloved son is the first sight you see. If you've been transferred into this kingdom of light, the kingdom of the beloved son, then the first sight you see, just like those little boys in the back of the truck, thrust down on your back, looking up at a whole new horizon, 180 degrees, that is overpowering to you because he is bigger, he is broader, he is more beautiful, more high definition, more captivating than you ever thought when you didn't have eyes to see, when you were captive, when you were dead. And it's the same awe quotient, A-W-E quotient, 
of those little kids in the truck. The Christian, when God gives you eyes to see, when he transfers you into the kingdom of his beloved son, makes you alive, you have faith in this Jesus described in the Bible. This is the view you see. For the first time ever, you see the invisible God in the visible Jesus. For the first time ever, you see God as personal, as beautiful, as the center of everything. But here's the problem. This is not one of the kind of the points in the message, but it's a diagnosis we have to look at before we talk about those three things I said we would. Here's the problem. All of us, and you included, me included, at some point for some reason have stopped gazing up into the sky. We have stopped looking at Jesus. Either because we've grown tired of the scenery at some point, or because we've grown tired, or we've grown distracted. This whole new world, like those boys in the back of the truck, the sky, the birds, this is unbelievable. What's that animal over there with four legs? What's that a house? What's that a truck? We get distracted by other views and we lose sight of Jesus. Now here's the problem with what happens when we lose sight of Jesus. A a, a temptation all of us fall into, a predicament all of us are always at some degree of being in. When we lose sight of him, we reduce Jesus, the Jesus Anna just read about, to an ignorable idea, to a dismissible idea concept or idea. Uh, we, we begin to treat Jesus and think about him like a talisman that kind of we pick him up and shake him or talk to him or ask something of him when we need something magical to happen in our lives, right? He's an object in our world. He's a peripheral object in our world that gets our attention when we need something from him, but he's not our world. And so sometimes I pick him up, sometimes I pay attention to him, sometimes I talk to him, sometimes I allow him to enter my circumstances, but oftentimes we say no trespassing into my agenda, into my desires, into my circumstances, my story, my life. Oftentimes we treat him like the talisman. And of course, of course we pay him lip service. Because to not pay him lip service makes us feel weird on the inside. We, we at least think that I should still talk grandly of him, like the way the Bible talks about him. And so we pay him lip service. We speak great things of Jesus, but we don't necessarily feel or see great things in Jesus. We grow tired of him, bored with him. And behind it all, what's going on is that we have domesticated an untamable Messiah, an untamable king who does as he pleases, who has a life of his own, thoughts of his own, an agenda of his own, desires of his own, opinions of his own. And we have made him small and controllable and have placed him in our world. And the most amazing thing of all, moment of truth and honesty for all of us here, is he, we are even capable of getting to a point where Jesus himself is a bore to us, where he's a bore Dorothy Sayers is an old British essayist and she says this brilliantly in her, in her uh, essay, Letters to a Diminishing Church. She says, the people who hanged Jesus never to do them justice accused him of being boring. On the contrary, they thought him too dynamic to be safe. It has been left to later generations to muffle up that shattering personality of Jesus and to surround him with an atmosphere of tedium. 
We have efficiently clipped the claws of the Lion of Judah, certified him meek and mild, and recommended him as a fitting household pet for pious old ladies. I love that. Because what she's saying, she's speaking in the 1940s, she's saying it's left for later generations, which is everything from the time Jesus ascended and went to heaven and onward. It was up to us to shrink him back down to a more manageable size where he answers to us, where he serves our agenda, where he shrinks down to the size of our dreams. And in our estimation, this Jesus becomes very small. And it's precisely because Jesus has become so small in our estimation that your anxieties have become so big. It's precisely because Jesus has become so tiny in our worlds that our insecurities have become so dominating. The threats that face you are dominating, overpowering threats. It's precisely because Jesus has become small or that we perceive him as being inactive in the details and circumstances of daily life or of the real world, that's precisely why we've become so hyperactive, so tired, so busy, so restless, so burned out. There's no God in our universe, and so we must fill the role. We must control the chaos. We must make everything run on time and happen the way it should. We must fix the evil We must fix ourselves, and we're exhausted people, and we're controlling people. We all have control issues for this reason. We have a small Jesus. The Colossians fell into this pattern. I know it, because where Paul goes after this in the coming weeks, this is all that he's talking about. If you don't hear yourself in what I'm talking about, if you're hearing this and you're like, well, that might be other people he's talking about, that's certainly not me, then then, let me say this as a friend to you. You don't get it. Because this is all of us, and if you don't feel like you're put back on the map by what we're talking about, Heather, you're prone to find Jesus boring, you're prone to forget about him, you're prone to have a very small Jesus and very big anxieties. If that does describe you, uh, then the good news is that Paul speaks uh, directly into that situation. The Colossians were those people, people who uh, made Jesus kind of after their own image and, and failed to see Jesus as separate from us, independent of us. We are tempted to this stuff. That's why Paul wrote this letter. If you don't get that, you think Paul's just theologizing. This is high-minded, flowery language about Jesus, blah, blah, blah. That's nice and poetic, Paul. Thank you. This will sound like Charlie Brown talking, wah, 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 wah to you. If you don't feel or see or recognize that everything that we've been talking about so far is true of you, If you do recognize that, this will be the greatest news in the world for you because it'll hit you right where you are. Paul has not just decided to kind of wax philosophical about the person of Jesus. There's a specific pastoral reason Paul goes here. It's because we forget. We lose sight of this. And he's blowing that nonsense up. He is systematically demolishing, exploding our tiny little Jesuses. And he's putting us back in the back of a pickup truck and he's opening your eyelids and he's saying, take it all in, watch, look from left to right. And so it's time we turn back to the passage and talk about this Jesus. He's seeable, he's supreme, he's sufficient. First, he's seeable, which means that you don't have to guess what God is like anymore. 
I spent most of my life, I guess, and perhaps you have too, guessing what God is like or fabricating what you wish God was like. We say things like this, right? We say things like, and you've probably heard this, people say, I just can't believe in a God who, fill in the blank. That's someone who's making God in their image. The creature dictating to the creator what kind of God you should be. Or we say things like, I just want to believe that God is like, again, it's a human being with a Mr. Potato Head God saying, I like the nose here and the ears there and take the hat off. I don't like that. This is diminishing the person of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus is seeable. Verse 15 and 16, Paul starts out, he says, the image, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And in that, he means that Jesus, if Jesus himself says, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. John says in his gospel, the moment where God is most clearly introduced to us is in Jesus' moment of glory, which John in his gospel defines as Jesus naked, straining for breath on a cross with a sign over his head that said, King. If you want to know what God is like, you look to the cross as it's described in the Bible. John says that's the truest, clearest picture of what the God of the Bible is like, one who dies for his enemies, one who gives his life away for people who don't deserve it. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen God, which means God has taken initiative to introduce himself to you. He's not waiting to kind of, for, for us to figure him out and deduce what he's like. This is not something where it's kind of like up to you to kind of figure out on your own what he's like or to dictate what he's like. If he's God, if he's divine and we're finite and we're creatures, it just, reality does not work that way. The finite cannot say to the infinite, you're this way. God introduces us, uh, to, us to himself in person. And you can look in the Bible where he is revealed, where he introduces himself to you, and you can look and you can track Jesus' reputation. You can know God's characteristics, his instincts. What was second nature to him? How did he respond to people who came to him in their shame or in their addiction or in their regret, in their guilt, in their being alienated and pushed to the margins of society? How would God ever respond to me if I came to him in those things? You don't have to guess anymore. Isn't that great news? There is a record of this. And in it, God is wrestling with your doubts and your suspicions saying, no, this is what I'm like. Watch him. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. Some of us, me, for, for so much of my life, God was essentially invisible. There was no image of him to look at in real living color and say, that's what he's like. That's what he would say to me. That's how he would react if I came to him and asked for mercy. And we see the image of God in the work of Jesus, not just the person of Jesus, but also his work. And that's what I was talking about, uh, his work of recreation, his work of redemption on the cross. That's the clearest picture you'll ever have of what the God of the Bible is like and what he does for people like us. But we also see, Paul says in verse 16, for by Jesus, all things were created. Or you could say, through Jesus, all things were created. Both things in heaven and on earth, things that are visible, things that are invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, rulers, authorities, all things were created through Jesus and for Jesus. Which means this, Jesus is the agent 
of creation. Meaning that there is a tight correlation between the stuff Jesus made and Jesus the maker. Which means this, let's get practical. When you see a sunset, the Bible itself says that sunset, the beauty of the earth around you is pouring forth speech. It is preaching to you. Isn't he beautiful? Isn't he brilliant? Isn't he good? Sunsets don't have to look good, but they are pleasing to the eye. The tastes that you love, the pumpkin spice latte on a cold October evening downtown with little leaves following down, falling down on the table around you. There's a reason that's pleasing to most of us, hopefully all of us. It's a gift from him and he invented every chemical in that drink that tastes good to the physiology of your tongue. And every temperature feels good to the nerve endings in your skin because he designed that and he designed this. Creation itself preaches to you about how beautiful and magnificent this Jesus is. We are supposed to deduce, reverse engineer, if this is beautiful, what is he like? Some of you have had class with Fritz Schaefer. Some of you know him. He's a mentor to you. He's the fourth highest cited chemist on planet Earth. He's a Nobel Prize laureate. And he's a child at heart. He's about an 80-year-old man or so, and he looks like Santa Claus, a conservative Santa Claus with a tightly cropped beard. But Fritz, I heard him here talk one time. Fritz said, this quantum chemist who everybody on planet Earth is quoting and reading his stuff, and he says, I go into the lab, and every now and then when I'm looking through this, like, million-dollar microscope, you know, 15 levels, you know, of detail into the mitochondria, sometimes I'll see something and I'll say to myself, that's how he did it. How genius of him. I never would have thought that's how he did it. And I loved that because that's worship in a UGA chemistry lab. That's what I'm talking about, that Jesus made everything you study in school. There's a reason the human body is beautiful to you. There's a reason these things taste good to you. There's a reason a rose smells good because Jesus who made it is good. And so, Jesus, friends, Jesus is seeable and knowable, and so you can, you can know what God is like, and you don't have to guess anymore. We, don't have to, we can be done with these made-up gods, this I can't believe in a God who, or I want to believe in a God who. No. How can you trust a God you literally just fabricated on the spot? It's not real. It's a fantasy. Second thing is Jesus is supreme, and so you don't have to fear anymore. You don't have to fret anymore because... Whatever is threatening you, Jesus made it. It's some warped vandalism of something he made. It's all his stuff. He's bigger than any threat you face. He's supreme over, Paul says in specifics, darkness over sin, over spiritual forces that tower over you. Talk about getting in the ring and battling Mike Tyson. The Bible sees, God is revealing more to us than we are able to see with our eyes. And he sees in this space, not just human beings here, not just material, tangible bricks and stuff, but he sees more than that, another realm of dark forces that push you and prod you and break you and tempt you. Jesus dominates those forces, even though for a season, for a time, they bother us, they stab us, they entice us. And so we don't have to fear because he's already beaten the things that we're terrified of. He's supreme over your genetic predispositions. He's supreme over your family history. 
He's supreme over the bad habits that you're beginning to unfortunately realize you picked up from mom and dad. He's bigger than all of that, which means he puts your threats back into perspective. When your God is bigger than that which threatens you, it immediately brings peace and it brings rest. Jesus isn't just supreme over the darkness, the principalities, the rulers. He's also, it says here, supreme. It says all of history, all of creation is about Jesus, is for Jesus. Which is to say that Jesus is supreme. He is sovereign over science, over engineering, over accounting, over trigonometry, over education and how people learn, over anthropology, over all of these things. It's his realm too. He's not kept out of those areas. And this is something that kind of occurred to me for the first time. Like, I I think you're with me. If you grew up in the church, you have a religious background, you probably already thought about Jesus as the agent of recreation. That's theology talk. Let's bring that down to earth. You probably thought of Jesus as a spiritual guy. He's the guy that takes care of my heart, my emotions, my soul. But did you know that Jesus is every bit king over the tangible, concrete, material, natural world as he is over the immaterial, spiritual world. Why? Because he created and he recreates, which the Bible calls redemption or salvation. The one who recreates and rescues this mess had to have been the one who made it in the first place, the original architect. Only the original architect can know its intricacies, its original purpose, and put things back to the way they were meant to be. Jesus is every bit king over what you learn about in class as he is what you learn about here at RUF, which also means uh, there is no sacred, secular dividing wall. There aren't spiritual things and secular things. This is Jesus' world He is its king, and he does with it all what he pleases to do. Abraham Kuyper is an old Dutch prime minister, and he has this famous quote. He said, there is not a single square inch of this world over which Jesus does not point at and say, mine. Which means if you think the world is out of control, it may appear out of control, but it's not. If you think your life is out of control, it may appear that, absolutely The Bible's full of validating it feels out of control, but it is not in reality because Jesus is in control. And it means this, that Jesus is also supreme in the church. Paul says everything in the Christian life is about Jesus. He is the head of the church, he says, which makes it problematic if we have accidentally turned the Christian life and made it all about us. We have boiled all of this down. And again, imagine the kids in the, in, the tr- in the back of the truck. This whole horizon we have narrowed down uh, to our battle against pornography or your cutting or your same-sex attraction or whatever it is. All of reality gets boiled down to one issue that gets so overinflated that it seems to dominate and we lose sight that Jesus is supreme even over these things. And it makes the Christian life all about me fixing those two or three problems. Me and my moral improvement. And if if anything is clear in this passage is that the Christian life is about Jesus. Let's take the first adjective off, life. For the Christian, the non-believer, the secularist, the humanist, the atheist, the agnostic, 
the Jew, the Muslim, the Buddhist, the Christian, for all of us, all of life is about Jesus. It's a great decentering power the gospel has to take us out of the center of our stories and to begin to orbit us around Jesus where sanity is and where that happens. I was thinking about it, to, to live for yourself in this life, to make the Christian life all about you, it's like going to someone else's surprise birthday party and you, ma- you make it all about yourself. You keep, like when they're like, speech, 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 you give a speech. Like you, you go over and open all the presents. At every point, the stories are about you. Uh, you're just like on top of the world and, and it's like you're not in on the joke. Wait, 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 this, this, uh, this isn't your party. You know, this is like, Ben's party, this is Sarah's party. And you're the only person not in on the joke. That's what it's like to to walk through this life and your life is all about you. Narcissism is a a grave tragedy that's, that's a millimeter away from all of us and so easy to fall into to make your life all about you and our agendas and my dreams when in fact we live in Jesus's world and we breathe his air And he sustains our heart and our chest and wakes us up morning after morning. And this is all about him. And so the question is, have you reduced the Christian life down to you and your struggles? You and your desires to see this happen, this happen, this happen, or this happen. And I do not at all mean to minimize the importance of battling those things and entering the fight, of course. That's what the rest of this book is about. But do you get what I'm saying here? Are you fixated on a thing in the Christian life, or are you fixated on Jesus, the center of it all? There's a very big difference. The last thing is that Jesus is sufficient, and so we don't have to supplement him anymore. We'll see this in a couple of weeks. This is where it gets really specific to the Christians in Colossae, because my goodness, they were like those people popping vitamins left and right. Like they had 20 bottles out every morning, little like spiritual supplements because they feared Jesus isn't sufficient. He's deficient. And so I need to kind of supplement him with some other stuff. All these other things, religious traditions, rituals, emotionalism, all kinds of other stuff. If you think Jesus is deficient, you will supplement him. You will find little vitamins, little places of nourishment everywhere and anywhere else in his creation. And that's the ironic thing is we go to the created thing to supplement the creator, which is philosophically odd how that would work. But we do it. I do it every day. And we start fearing that we're going to be malnourished and we need this other stuff. We have to have it. And here's how it works. Jesus is great, but I'm a little bit worried about malnourishment. He feels a little deficient, so it's Jesus plus that specific body type or that shape of leg or nose or whatever that I have in my mind, that if I had, I'd be off to the races. Life would be amazing. That's the supplement. Jesus plus Amazon Prime so I can always be holding something new and fresh and indulge every desire and it shows up on my doorstep. Forget about two-day delivery, 24-hour delivery. Jesus plus emotional nirvana so I'm always on a high and never have to be weak never have to explore my heart anymore, never have to depend on his strength. Jesus plus your candidate getting in office. Jesus plus a better personality so that you'll matter more to other people. Jesus plus omniscience so that you can know now what job you're gonna get next May when you graduate. Those are what supplements look like. We find him deficient and so we have to go search for nourishment in other places. 
And so, friends, do you see the converse of all of this? When you begin to see Jesus as sufficient for you, sufficient for your needs, sufficient for all of you, your failure, your guilt, your shame, your dreams, your desires, do you begin to see how you begin to rest in him and trust him and find him beautiful and stop taking supplements when that happens? Verse 18 and verse 20, Paul begins to tell us what Jesus used his divinity for. He says, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. Jesus isn't someone God made and like in the first century when Mary gave birth, he started existing, pre-existing. Firstborn of all creation doesn't mean literally he was born. It's using inheritance language there. The firstborn son got everything. Jesus had no beginning, he has no end. He simply became something he wasn't before when he entered our world for 33 years and lived among us. But he existed before that, he created the world. And in these verses, Paul doesn't just say, hey, get this, Jesus is powerful, he's divine. He shows you what Jesus used his power to do for you. To redeem you from all that you know is true about you to rescue you out of that domain of darkness, out of slavery, out of addiction, to heal you, to make you friends with God and not enemies anymore, to reconcile you. Friends, Jesus is seeable, he's sufficient, he's supreme, and he's worthy of your life. I wanna end with an observation and a quick story. The observation is this apostle Paul met this Jesus And Paul had a ton of struggles, had a ton of issues. They're all throughout the New Testament. However, one issue Paul never dealt with was apathy. There is no record anywhere in the Bible from Paul or anybody else saying this was a complacent man who kind of burned out and lost lost sight of Jesus. Paul's life was supremely disrupted by Jesus' life in the best of ways. Paul couldn't ever go back to the mediocrity before meeting the resurrected Jesus. Paul could never take his eyes off this Jesus and he is sharing what he has seen with you that you might move to that place too. So here's what I want you to do with what you've heard tonight. This is a tiny little glimpse of a much bigger Jesus that we've gotten in this passage. So here's what you can do in response. My little girl is Addie. She's two and a half and... Every night at bedtime, we kind of have a little ritual or a little joke that she and I go through. And I'll ask her as I put her to bed, hey, Addie, can Daddy sleep in your bed? And every night she giggles a little bit and she says, no, Daddy, you can't sleep in my bed. You're too big. But I can sleep in your bed. So friends, here's what what I would suggest to you tonight. Don't ask Jesus into your life. It's too small for him. He's too big for that. Ask him to let you into his life. There's plenty of room for you. That's the gospel. God making room for his enemies who repent, who know their need of him, and who put their faith in this Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would let us into your life because you are worthy. You are worthy of our lives. You are worthy of the worship all creation gives you. You're worthy of the worship the church gives you. You're worthy and deserving of the worship all of us should give you.
but we need your help to show us who you really are, to open our blind eyes, to put our necks looking back to the sky to take you all in. And we pray that because you are infinite, there would never come a day where we felt like we've plumbed the depths and fully grasped. That is our prayer, Jesus. We pray in your name, amen.